This is episode 575 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. When we look at the prayer of Jesus in John 17, it seems one of his major prayer requests was that the disciples would remain united as one after he was gone. Jesus even says that because of their unity and their oneness and love for each other, that the lost world would believe that the Father sent him and implied that he is the Messiah. Read it for yourself. That puts the bar pretty high regarding the church being more like a family than an institution. But you and I both know, and it's clearly evident to everyone else, that the church is a dysfunctional family at best and probably an institution by design. But how do we change that? What can we do to create the kind of fellowship the Lord wants in his church, the koinonia, as it's called? What changes do we need to make as individual believers to embrace those Christ has also called unto himself? Join us today as we look at why it's so important to Jesus for you and I to get along in his church as we try to discover how to leave Laodicea or lukewarmness behind. We have been going through the book of Revelation. We've talked about um, Matthew chapter 24 prior to that. And so pretty much uh, this is kind of, if you take a macro view, this is kind of the direction we've been going. We've talked about, talked about the great deception. We've talked about the Matthew 24 passage where Jesus says that's the first sign of the end is deception. So great that if it was possible, even the elect would be deceived. We looked at Revelation chapter 6 the rider on the white horse, the very first rider who represents false Christ. We will get to Revelation 13, where you've got these, these false prophets that are coming out and performing these miraculous signs to deceive people. Then, of course, the Bible talks about before Christ comes, we'll suffer this great apostasy. We find that in 2 Thessalonians 2, where Paul talks about the fact that you know, before the Antichrist comes, there's this great falling away first. 1 Peter 4, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 4 talks about in the last days, perilous times will come. And he starts talking about how the, um, the false gospel we proclaim is find the same truth in 2 Peter chapter 2. And then, of course, there's the persecution. The persecution that has happened in other countries to other people throughout time. We somehow think we're immune to that, but we're not. We see that in Matthew 24, Revelation 6, 13, and 20. Um, it's kind of, uh, it's part of our DNA. It's what's coming. It's what's already happening. Um, and um, I'll leave it at that. So if that's what's coming on the horizon, then we take a step back and we say, okay, Christ, how do we prepare? What do you want us to do? What can we do to prepare ourselves to shine like bright lights whatever circumstances you send our way. John 17 that I read to you before Justice spoke two weeks ago, uh, what was that last week? Last week, lays all of that out, uh, lets us know exactly what Christ's desire is for the church. And the, the desire of that church is to be one, to be unified, one voice, one belief, caring for each other more than you care for yourself. We find the example of that in um, 
Acts chapter 2, verse 6, and even following, where they were together, and when persecution took place, and the disciples came back beaten and bloodied, that they prayed, prayed to the Lord that he would give them more boldness, and the house they were with was shaken, that they shared their their goods with each other. It wasn't a bunch of independent contractors who come and go as they please, but it was a family. It was a unit. It was, it was something unheard of in that culture or this culture today. And then the question is, how does that happen? What did they do corporately? What did the leadership do to foster that kind of unity? And again, it's in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that we've gone through several times. I'm not going to Break this down. We've already done that. But they continued steadfastly. The early church got together like us, and they put their mission statement out. And everything they did as a congregation, they would funnel through that mission statement. And the mission statement was, we're going to focus on only four things. These are four things that the Lord brought our way. Number one is the apostles' doctrine. Number two is fellowship. I think it's amazing that two is fellowship. It's even higher ranking than prayer. Number three is the breaking of bread. At that time, it was the love feast coupled with the, uh, the Lord's Supper. As we're going to talk about later on, those things got split, and the love feast was dumped, and it just the, the Lord's Supper. And then, of course, in prayers. And so the apostles' doctrine, no problem. That's preaching and teaching, and we have probably more opportunities to hear good Bible teaching today than we've ever had in history before. You know, everybody's on the internet and they're streaming stuff, and you've got audio books and all that kind of stuff. No problem with the apostles' doctrine. Fellowship, different story. The church interprets fellowship as friendship. You know, hey, buddy, how you doing? Pretty good. How was your week? Oh, not bad. How about yours? Oh, it's great. Good to see you. You know, and somehow that's fellowship. You know, and fellowship is a meal over, you know, chicken dinner on Sunday after church, dinner on the grounds. Fellowship is like being a buddy and a friend until, of course, you look at that word koinonia, which again, we've spent time doing. And koinonia is, no, it's more than it's a partnership. It's a, it's a unity. It's, a, it's something far greater than how we have degraded that word to just be like a bunch of people going to a college football game because they have season tickets and graduated a decade apart and they see each other three times a year. It's so much different than that, but the church has kind of lost that because we don't know how to forge that because we've given up the whole idea of this breaking of bread, of this love feast, which is more than a meal. It's a time for a family to come together and actually share things that are going on in their life. Every time, well, yeah, literally every time we have a family meal at our house, it is funny, it's fun, you know, um, all guards are down, kids are running in and out, and, you know, everybody's having a good time, and you're talking about events that have taken place, and when it's all over with, everybody feels closer together. We need to do this again. We need to, we need to focus more on that. But sometimes you come to church, and you sit in your little conclave, don't talk to anybody unless they talk to you, and you know you eat in, in alone, and you look at your Bible alone, and you sing songs by yourself, and that's not fellowship. That's, that's not. And it's more like a, a family setting where, like when we have a fellowship meal at our house, it doesn't matter whether it's me talking or whether it's Josiah or Maya or, or Maddie saying, hey, and telling a story. Everybody has, you know, that person has your undivided attention because 
Everybody's the same. Everybody's equal. Everybody is loved. And this is something that the church has lost. You soon find out by design because it's what made the church powerful. I'm hoping that we will um, institute something like that here so that when our kids grow up and maybe they move to another town and they want to go to another church, they'll no longer be satisfied with going to a serve us where I'm just sitting in a pew, singing a couple songs and you know, enjoying the music and then going home and shaking hands with three people, that they'll want something that resembles more of a revival every Sunday than what we're kind of used to. Now, I'm shaking the box of um, Honey Bunches of Oats. And all, when I open it up, all I see is the oats, and I start shaking it, and pretty soon all these nuggets come up. So I just want you to see, and just this sampling of passages, how important it is for the church to be one. This is, of course, Jesus in John 17, verse 21, kind of sums up his desire for the church. He says, my prayer, Lord, it's not just for my disciples that are here, but for everybody that would believe on me through their testimony and through their word. In other words, for us today. What is your desire for us today? That they may all be one. Well, yeah, we're one. I mean, we kind of vote for the same candidate and we kind of believe the same things. And no, 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 no. We're not talking about superficial oneness. They may be one. To what degree? As you, Father, are in me. We're the same, yet separate. And I am in you, the same, but separate. It's not like the father says something and the son says something, and they get in an argument. They're all thinking the same and focusing on the same thing. That they may also be one in us. We're the body. He's the head. Why? Why is that so important? Because it doesn't matter what kind of club you have or organization you have out there. The fact is, everybody comes to even a business. They all come together as independent contractors, negotiating their own salaries. You know, we're all going to force together as a football team to win the Super Bowl until the season's over, and then we go with the highest bidder. It's not like that. It's an evangelistic purpose. I'm going to create something in a bunch of strangers who have very little in common, and they're going to be so united as one that the world is going to say, only God could do that. Only God could create this living entity of the church, you know, experiencing koinonia, loving others more than they did themselves, even though they have every reason to be angry at somebody else. One person's a tax collector, and the other one's a zealot, even among Jesus' 12. The reason why I'm doing that is the world may believe that I am the Messiah, that you sent me. All right, Lord, I... uh, I read that last week. Are there any other places in Scripture that you preach the same truth? Here's Romans chapter 15. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you what? To be like-minded, not necessarily about political issues, to be like-minded towards one another, according to Jesus Christ. Why Why would we need to be like-minded? that you may have one mind and one mouth, glorifying God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Back during the early church days, I'm so glad you read that today, Vic. During the early church days, if you want to know what the church believed, they all got together. They had a church council. 
They came up with various creeds. Many of those creeds were established to uh, combat heresies that were going on as Satan was trying to destroy the church from the inside. You knew exactly where the church stood because there's our creed that was accepted universally. Is it that way today? No, every church you go to, you got to look at their statement of faith to see what they believe. And some of them are just whacked, you know, and the church doesn't even speak for one voice anymore. Is the church against abortion? Well, some, some not. Yeah, no, maybe. Church against this, church against that. The church doesn't speak at all anymore, unified. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I plead with you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what's your plea? That we'll have spirit-filled worship, that we'll understand God's word, that we'll go out and share Christ evangelistically on Thursday night visitation? No, that you all speak the same thing. That what comes out of this person's mouth is the same thing that comes out of this person's mouth because both of you have one father. You believe one thing. You're unified as a family. And that there be no divisions among you and you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, what you think and what you choose and decide in your judgment. Wow, okay, uh, Kind of getting the point, but I'm kind of slow. Do you have any more? Well, here's Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling in which you were called. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means to be like Christ, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, no matter how bad the situation is, bear with one another in love. And you're doing it for one reason, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All right. Uh, how about Ephesians 4? Well, notice this passage. One body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Oh, so there's no option here for me to decide it's going to go somewhere else. Philippians chapter 2, you noticed it's almost like every one of Paul's letters we're looking at, and there's so many more, deal with the unity of the body, oneness. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort in love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, if you guys care about me at all, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, not tithing or worshiping or starting satellite churches or building a new wreck building, but being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, again, of one mind. As I'm um, asking that question, uh, Paul, I do, he says, Steve, do you believe this? Yes, I believe this. But how? How do we do that? How do, how do we fulfill this? And he continues. Don't do anything through selfish ambition or conceit. No independent contractors. But in lowliness of mind, esteem each other better than himself. Each of you look at it, not for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. All right, well, now we're in Colossians. I wonder how many more letters we need to go through here. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put on tender mercies, kindness, 
humility, meekness, long-suffering, and I want you to bear with one another and forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. No complaining, no hurt feelings, no I'm offended. Oh, man, okay. Well, how do I do this? I mean, you've given me a command. Show me the how question, the answer. But above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your heart, to which you were also called in one body, and good night, be thankful. Quit complaining and be thankful. Had enough? I did. I'm shaking that box. I don't want to eat any more nuggets. It's like, that's, that's it. Okay, wow, wow. It's all, it, it's been there. I've seen it my whole life. But all of a sudden, when they all come up together at the same time, as we're studying about the love feast, you realize that, man, man, maybe, uh, maybe unity and peace in a church is not just the absence of conflict. Maybe it's something more like family. You know, where you put up with other people's shortcomings, and, you know, when somebody does something that's irritating, you simply just say, well, that's just them. It's all family, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And maybe that's how church is supposed to be, united for a cause, united to a person, thinking the same and focusing on the same and having the same goal and agenda, which is to you know, extol Christ and build his kingdom and not what we focus on today. So if God uh, gave his, truck, his church instructions on how we could accomplish this, then it stands to reason that the enemy would do everything he could to try to see that destroyed. Would you agree? So I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. Again? Yes, again. And I want you to watch this really quick. Revelation chapter 3, or ch chapter 2 and 3, lays out for us the history of the church in various ages. Of course, we have the church at Ephesus, which is the first one. Uh, it runs from about the death of Christ to the end of the first century. During that time, of course, Rome came in and destroyed uh, the temple at that time. The church at Ephesus means darling and beloved is what that name means. Uh, the Lord had good things to say about that church and some not so good things to say about that church. It applauded them on their faith and their perseverance. What it said was, the problem is you've lost your first love. In other words, you're not focusing on the true mission of the church, and so therefore I advise you, and then he goes on to give these admonitions at the end. The church in Smyrna, which means crushed, or myrrh, and myrrh is a spice that doesn't emit its fragrance until it's, unless it's crushed, runs from about 100 AD to the Edict of Toleration and the Edict of Milan that, again, I, I wrote about in about 312 and 313 AD, where all of a sudden the persecution quit. During these 250 years, or how many years it was, the church suffered greatly. There were 10 great persecutions. Again, I wrote you something about that. And the church persevered during that time. This is the writing of the early church fathers. This is when the love feast is what kept the church together. It's what kept them together as a unit, that they were so close to each other, didn't have to worry about somebody coming in and betraying them because they knew the people that were there because they were all given sacrificially and it was like all for one and one for all in the non, 
three musketeers kind of way. The Lord said only good things about this church because they thrived under persecution, much like the Communist China church has done since 1949. Then you have the church of Pergamos. The word Pergamos means mixed marriage. It is now the marriage between the church and the state, and it lasts from 312 to about 606. And 606 is when Boniface III was declared as the universal Catholic pope. And during this time, of course, you had this decision that the church had to make where they wanted to either stay pure with Christ or they wanted to mix themselves with the state and everything that came with that. And it was during this phase that the love feast met its demise. Thyatira means continual sacrifice. This is the Catholic church, pretty much. This means that there's no true remission of sin. That um, It's amazing how the Lord chose these names randomly and they all fit together, huh? There's, uh, the, um, there's no remission of sins. You know, this is when you had all the purgatory and the, the confession to the saints and, and indulgences and all that kind of stuff. And that lasted until 1520 when the Reformation took place. And when the Reformation, literally the word sardis means those who came out of. Reformation took place, and they redeemed for us the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, plus, minus, or plus and minus nothing, but there were so many things that they didn't do. After that, in about 1750, and it says up into the rapture, because this church age is prophetically promised not to see the great tribulation that will affect the entire world, breaking that down and explaining it to you is a topic for another time, but during this time, you had the great missionary movements. You had you know, the devotional writers. You had people who were excited about sharing Christ. And this particular movement, when, a, when they would read in Scripture, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, these people literally went. We kind of read it and go, oh, that's interesting, and kind of move on to something else. And then, of course, you have the Laodicean uh, church age, the one we live in now, and the word Laodicea means the rule of the people or the people rule. We call all the shots, and that lasts from about 1900, and these dates aren't exact. 1900 until whenever time Christ comes to rapture his church. Um, and this is, the, um, this is the history of the church laid out in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. The Lord said, only good things about the church suffering great persecution, the church in Smyrna, and the church in Philadelphia, who was not so much focused on institutions, but was actually focused on actually doing what Christ told us to do. The great missionary movements, the great sacrificial movements, the higher life movement came during this time. So it appears, if we were smart, being in the Laodicean church age, if we wanted to model ourselves after a church, we would model ourselves after the church God was most pleased with. Would that not make sense? It makes sense in every other area of life. The two churches God said nothing good about, nothing good about, is Sardis, the Reformation church, ow, boy, that stings, and the church time in which we live right now. Today, he says about the church, um, I know your works, you think that you're rich, that you don't need anything, that you're wealthy, but for me, you are poor and blind and wretched and naked. Because you don't 
care about me. And at the end of that, you find Jesus on the outside of the church and knocking to get into the church. It's not he's knocking on the door of your heart, and if you open your heart, he'll come in. People use that as an application, but in this letter, Jesus is outside the church, knocking on the door of the church, asking the church to open up and let him in. What we do, what the church has done in the Laodicean church age, is they have elevated the Sardis church that we want to be like them. (laughs) And God didn't say anything good about them either. And that's a message for another day also. The question is, what did the church do in Smyrna and in Philadelphia that made them um, so pleasing as unto the Lord? We're just going to look at one aspect of that today, which is the love feast. And I want to tell you what happened to it. And I want to explain to you the importance of um, reinstituting that, not just the meal. Meal is just a vehicle. But having the mindset that you're important and then people want to hear what you have to say. And it's okay to share with others what's going on in your life and like a family setting would be. So let me go ahead and give you a brief history of this. As you know, the early church in the, uh, in the first century, they had the love feast. They began celebrating that. I've already shared the passages with you where Paul talks about it and Jude talks about it uh, in the New Testament. And I've, uh, if I haven't explained it to you, I've written it in details. Just read those emails that I've sent to you where what happened during their church services. They would come together and share a common meal and during that common meal, people would share. They'd have a, you know, a tongue or a prophecy or a word or an instruction or praising God for this. And you know, there'd be a time of, of, of mentoring shit where new Christians would come and the older, more mature Christians would bring them, oh, come sit with me. Those that had little brought little. Those that had much brought much. When the church began excluding the people who brought little because the guys that had much wanted to eat all the good food, that's when Paul was chastising them and setting rules for the Lord's Supper. There was a message that was given. There were songs that were sung. There was uh, prayers that were prayed. And sometime during that love feast, usually towards the end, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. But it wasn't the meal that mattered. It was the attitude of the people who came together in a, and fellowshiped. This love feast... Um, played a big part in the ability of the church in Smyrna to survive persecution. They didn't have buildings to meet in. They uh, met in people's homes and barns and in neutral locations. They met out in the field. Sometimes they met in caves or, you know, away from everybody else. They were afraid of being arrested during the persecution time. Uh, And again, persecution wasn't continual. You'd have a season of persecution, then a season of rest. But as soon as the persecution ended, it wasn't like the Christians said, hey, let's build a church on every street corner. They did. They kept continuing evangelizing, doing church the way they did. Then you have another persecution and another persecution, and people were killed, and they were martyred, and they were in prison, and their property was confiscated. I mean, it was a really terrible time. Yet the church flourished. It flourished to the point that is estimated by the Edict of Toleration that 10% that were willing to confess it, 10% of the Roman population were Christians, and and a vast majority of the slaves, which were not even included in that number. And Rome was fearful of the fact, especially in the city of Rome, 
that there were more slaves than citizens. They could have a revolt at any time they wanted. So it was a force to be reckoned with. And so you had this love feast that kept continuing, and it made the church strong, and it made the church one, and it unified people together. You've heard stories about what the church was like under uh, Ceausescu and in communist China, and they would come together in secret, and sometimes they would sing hymns and no words would come out of their mouth, and they would share a meal together and share with each other, and, and it was just, it was kind of like a bonding of a family together, like it happens after a tragedy. The Roman Empire at that time was not ruled by one leader. Um, it was actually ruled by four and they were uh, in, in fighting between them. Uh, Constantine was just one of them. Constantine was getting ready to fight one of his rivals. And um, it was a decisive uh, battle that allowed him to be king of, uh, you can say, or emperor of the western side of the uh, Roman Empire at that time. And he had this vision and this dream at night. And what he saw was something like a cross, um, that uh, I can't remember the exact name, it had the curly things on the end of the cross. And uh, the words that were spoken to him by this sign or under this sign, conquer. And so he immediately thought it was from God. And so he had all his soldiers paint this cross on their shields. They went out and defeated the enemy. He had advisors that were telling him from a political reason that he needs to, to end the uh, Diocletian persecution of uh, the Christian church at that time. And so he issued the Edict of Toleration and the Edict of Milan, along with a, the person that was ruling the eastern side of the empire, that basically uh, no longer persecuted the Christian church and then let the guys out of prison that were in prison and reestablished all their property and then finally made Christianity the premier religion of the Roman Empire. Now the church had a problem, had a serious problem. Because all of a sudden, now they don't have to hide anymore. They, uh, uh, Constantine is getting rid of the pagan rituals. And they have to understand in a pagan ritual, you would go to some sort of high priest place, a pagan temple, and you would go in there and you would sit. And the high priest would go through the motions and he'd perform for you. And you'd watch and he would, you know, make you come up and he'd dot you with blood or something of that nature, speak some incantation over you. And it's very formal and and only the pre high priest could do this kind of stuff. And, and you had this kind of mindset in Rome at that time. And so when all of a sudden Constantine let Christians worship the way they wanted to, there was an immense amount of pressure to get rid of the pagan element and to reinstitute, change it with uh, the Christian church. That's exactly what they did. Now, pastors that were leading flocks that met in groves at night, all of a sudden had a pagan temple given to them. And all they had to do in the pagan temple is kind of worship the way the people expected them to worship at that time. You had uh, pagan priests that didn't want to lose their job, confess to Christianity so they could maintain their position paid for by the state. It's not like we have here today where um, you know pastors are paid for by the congregation. And uh, it just became a real mess. I shared with you before that one of the big controversies that took place is then when these Christians had apostatized and bowed down and worshipped Constantine as the emperor of the world and renounced their faith, they were allowed to still function in the community at that time. And these people who refused to do that were, in, were jailed and tortured, many of them killed and their property confiscated. When all of a sudden they were released from jail, they're looking at these guys, these betrayers that had 
had uh, denied Christ, who have leadership positions in the church, and the big debate they had at that time was, wait a second, these guys aren't even believers. How can they have full standing in the church when they announced and, and reject, or they renounced Christ? The state moved in on that uh, situation and decided that it would please the emperor if everybody was included in the, uh, the church. And so um, you had the church limping on as this mixed marriage. And again, you had the Lord's Supper, and you had this fellowship supper, and this fellowship supper, for some reason, is what built the unity among the believers. And it was the job of any government, including ours, to divide and not build together. And so the Roman Empire wanted to divide the Christian church at that time, and so you had, um, you had the Roman Empire placing certain favor on individuals. There became a clergy-laity divide. The uh, congregation was never the ones that, that spoke for Christ. It was just the priest or the pastor who did. He was subsidized by the state. You move into this kind of ecclesial hierarchy that we have now, and it seemed to satisfy everybody because that's what they were used to for centuries with this pagan worship. Constantine died. A um, few other emperors took his place, and the power of the church uh, there was a division taking place in the church between those people who wanted to hold on to the Acts 42 model of the church and those people who wanted to become more pagan in nature. They would take uh, pagan holidays and make them Christian holidays, like Christmas. You really think Jesus was born on December 25th? I mean, mountains are impassable. It was just a pagan holiday that we're going to Christianize it stuff of that nature. And so pagan symbols all of a sudden became Christian symbols. Most of the Christmas tree and the Yule logs and stuff like that, that's, there's, no, there's no spiritual foundation for that. We say that we've just sanctified it. We've taken something that Satan used and made it something for Christ. Fine. But the fact is, it was simply a compromise. And so towards the latter part of the third century, this came to a head that the emperor said, you know what, uh, I don't want these guys meeting together in fellowship. Uh, because if they meet together in fellowship, they're bonding together and people are sharing their views and they're sharing their feelings about stuff and they're proclaiming this Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I am the emperor and I am the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so Augustine said at that time, whoa, that's right. So you know what? Uh, I'm going to write this book called City of God. And you know what? You're right. We don't want to take the Bible literally anymore. Jesus is really not coming back to, be, to rule and reign literally on the earth. That, we're just going to spiritualize that. We're allegorize that. We're going to invent something later on called amillennialism because the emperor didn't want to think another man they're worshiping is going to come and, um, and rule and reign on the earth. That was his job. And so you had this whole capitulation that took place, which, by the way, most of mainline Christianity today adheres to a non-literal return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the church, you had two factions. You had one that wanted to please the state, this mixed marriage. You had the other one that wanted to hold back to the tenants. By that time, they were meeting in church buildings. They weren't meeting in homes anymore. And so the emperor decreed that you cannot have meals in church buildings anymore. Why? Well, because the church is supposed to be sacred, quiet, stained glass, like pagan worship used to be, and you guys are making it too, uh, too um, friendly. And to 
Coupled with that, the church got together. This was not a universal church council, but 30 bishops and elders got together in the town of Laodicea. Isn't that shocking? And they had their own council called the Council of Laodicea at the end of the third century. And they made a bunch of rules about what priests and priest, uh, priest and bishops could and couldn't do in church. And one of them just uh, said that there shall be no more love feast in the church anymore. And we are going to separate the love feast from the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper we will do in the church. The love feast we won't. And then over time, not much time, the love feast just kind of faded away because it was uh, unable to take place in the church at that time. And by then, most of Christianity in the Roman Empire was going to church, separate buildings, rather than worshiping like they did in the second century. And that part of Christianity has never been revived, except in small pockets during the missionary movement of, of the 1800s. That was a long summary, wasn't it? Everybody understand that? So what was, the, what was the purpose of that? Weren't there Christian leaders, you know, pastors and elders and, and theologians who wanted to go back and, and, and do it like it was in the beginning? Sure. But most of those people, once they achieved power, did not want to divest that power to anybody else. And what happens in the church is you have elders and you have deacons who serve, but everybody in the church, is there's, there's no rich or poor or slave or free. Everybody in the church has a right and a privilege and is encouraged to share how God is speaking to you because of this priesthood of believers. The fact is that I have direct access to the throne of, of God. Do you realize that? And so does Karen. So does Vic. So does every one of us in here. And the, the clergy at that time, again, we're moving into what later became the Catholic Church, did not want it that way at all. We wanted to keep the people ignorant. When we moved into the next church, oh, I'm sorry, the next church age of Thyatira, I mean, we're going to even give masses in languages they don't understand. We're not going to let you guys have scriptures at all, because if you do, you'll figure out what we're doing is wrong. And it became just uh, the dark ages. It became a really terrible time for the history of the church. Then all of a sudden, Wittenberg got his printing press. Bibles were readily available, not readily available, more available than they were. Martin Luther was reading the book of Romans and all of a sudden realized that salvation is not what he'd been taught as a monk. Uh, he posted his 95 thesis on the chapel door at the University of Wittenberg while he was teaching a class going through the book of Romans. It was printed, the Reformation, which really began about 60 years early, but the Reformation became popular. And... There were people who died, and the Protestant, you know, the Protestants separated, the Protestants separated from the Catholic Church on the issue of salvation, but on every other issue, they capitulated. They capitulated the issue of the end times. They capitulated their view of Israel and the Jews. They capitulated on church worship. They capitulated on so many things. And I believe it's because their plate was so full just with salvation through faith alone that uh, the Lord said nothing good about them, even though I think what they did was incredible. And what he said about them was, I do not find your works complete in God. You had so much opportunity, and you didn't, and you failed. You didn't go back to what built the church in the beginning. 
what you did was great. I mean, I th thank them for my salvation. But how we practice Christ, they didn't. The next, the Philadelphia age did, the Laodicean age, not at all. And I believe, as we're moving into darker times, that um, the church needs to get back to its beginning. And again, it's not a meal. Please don't, it's not a fellowship meal. It's, uh, it's an attitude behind the meal. It's, hey, this is an opportunity for me to sit down and talk with Jeanette. You know, I haven't talked to Jeanette in a couple of weeks. Jeanette, tell me what's going on in your life. And Jeanette shares a story like you shared today. Oh, that's, that's great. Man, other people want to hear that. You know, or let me tell you what's going on in my life. And, and then it expands from Jeanette and who's talking to her to other people. Or Vic coming up and sharing what God's been showing him and um, about the um, Apostles' Creed and, and how you guys, the young ones, don't make the mistakes that we did. Focus on that kind of stuff. And, and the new people come in and they're embraced and they're loved. And it's no longer about you or me. It's about us, like a family. The sacrifices we make for our family, the, the forbearance we offer for our family. As a parent, the money you spend for your kids and grandkids, and you don't even think about it because it's family. Make sense? Last thing, and I don't want to really um, hit this hard. I will, again, write something on this that I'll be sending to you. Um, but a perfect picture of this is what took place in Germany after, between World War I and World War II. Uh, in Germany, you had the German Christian Church, which is the formal church. It was a Lutheran church. It was uh, the church that had all the steeples and all the big buildings on the side. It was, it was the, the, the noteworthy church. In Germany, of course, it was the official church. We don't have an official church today. Um, and so people were usually Lutheran, or then you're some kind of strange offshoot of, uh, of that. And what happened is that the government decided that they wanted to regulate religion. And so what they did is they said, you are more than welcome to continue having worship services. This is when the Nazis took over, worship services in your buildings. We'll give you the permits. We'll give you the permission to do that. We'll even protect you for doing that. However, there's a caveat. Every sermon that you're going to preach, what we need for you to do is we need to submit that sermon in, in advance to the local uh, minister of propaganda and he will edit out what he doesn't want said, or he will highlight this, and he will give you back an approved sermon. And when you, you're allowed to preach the approved sermon, and while you're preaching, it's okay for you to have the German Christian flag over here, but you must also have the Nazi flag over here also, because it's a melding together of church and religion. Almost every church that had a building and a history and a staff I mean, they didn't want to give that stuff up, so they capitulated because they got bills to pay and house payments to make and stuff of that nature, and you had what was called the professing church. They didn't come up with that name until Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Mueller decided that they couldn't live this way anymore. And again, there were decrees that came down. It's way more information than you need. There were decrees that came down, like the Aryan paragraph that said in your church, you can only have Aryans, you can't have Jews, they can't even have any part of Jew blood in them. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was led to the Holocaust. And the Christians said, some Christians says, we're not going to meet that way. And they created what was called the confessing church. 
They had no seminaries because there were nobody would give them any buildings. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer would take 30 young students who became the 30 pastors of the Confessing Church and took them out into the woods in the wintertime with no heat other than a potbelly stove and wooden coal that they burned that was given to them or let them use by uh, some lady who was uh, sympathetic to the cause. And they taught them community and they taught them oneness. You ought to read his book about that. Most of the pastors of the Confessing Church were in prison. Many of them were killed, just like uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in 1945. But the reality is that um, you may find it hard to believe, but I'm finding it hard to believe the stuff I'm seeing every day on the news, that uh, we're moving into an area like that now. You know, and they, you know, it's going to come to a point in time when church may just be you and your kids. You know, you as the spiritual leader of your family um, not being able to meet with a body of believers as often as we're able to do right now, and like it is in communist China or was in communist China and other countries, that you may have to be the one that leads your family in worship. How prepared are you for that? You know, how? What can we do to get ready? What I would like to do is I would like to continue modeling our worship services the best we know how. Um, after the early church, which means that we'll come together for a communal meal. Uh, is that a hassle? Yeah, it is, but you've got to eat anyway, right? Is it a, you know, I don't, don't want to, can we just meet at 10 o'clock? I've always met at 10 o'clock on Sunday. I know, me too. And I feel like I'm sinning when I go out on Sunday morning, don't you? But the fact is, it really doesn't matter. We, uh, we meet together at one and maybe in the evening, maybe on Saturday, maybe some other time during the week. And that's a great opportunity for you to invite other people that you know that may go to a, a, a good church somewhere but are starving to death for Christian fellowship. I mean, if you go to a church that has 1,000 members on Sunday, at best you'll know the few people sitting around you. And if you don't go to a small group like a Sunday school, you'll know even less people than that. Maybe invite them to come and eat with us. Maybe invite them to, you know, we're not asking them to join us. We just want to do what Christ commanded his church to do, and what they did that helped them persevere during really dark times. So at the end of our life, now that, for me, this is where I'm at right now, now that he's revealed this to me, I'm accountable to him. At the end of my life, I want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. I know, but, but I didn't do it back. You didn't know back then, but you know now. And so I would love for us to begin worshiping together like that. Can't orchestrate it. The meal's not going to cut it. Type of music we play, you know, how about real uh, peppy or maybe some kind of more meditative. No, it's not that. It's a condition of your heart and my heart to open up and let other people in, let the Holy Spirit in, ask him to help you love people that irritate you, <laughs> which is sometimes kind of hard. Ask him, I just emailed this to you this week. Ask him to show you how to hear his voice from his word. And once you hear his voice, share it with us on Sunday so we can be encouraged by what God's showing you. Amen? Because listen, this day's coming. Um, I used to think, I've known it's been coming for a long time, but I used to think it was never going to get here. But ever since COVID, things are happening so fast. I mean... These fires breaking out everywhere that burn houses and not trees? That's another story altogether. The fact is, it's, uh, 
the amazing times in which we live. And we need to be ready because the church thrived in communist China um, under great persecution. The church thrived under Roman persecution. And the church will thrive under whatever woke persecution we suffer if we're prepared for it like he told us to do spiritually. And I pray that you guys will think about that and take it to heart and see what God would have you do. Amen? Let me pray.